This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 28, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Should the Department of Justice be able to declare an ex-con sexually dangerous and civilly commit them? Does the Necessary and Proper Clause provide Congress open-ended authority? Those are a couple of the issues in the complicated Comstock case. Roger Pilon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, says there is one important substantive matter in the troubling case that no justice's opinion touched on. This case involved a challenge to the Adam Walsh Smith Protection Act of 2006, which authorized uh, the Department of Justice to civilly commit uh, sexually dangerous people after they had served their term. And so it raises all kinds of questions of a rights nature, But those due process questions were not before the court. There was only one question before the court in this case, and that's a question of where does Congress get its authority under the Constitution to enact such a statute? So it's that most basic of constitutional questions. And Justice Breyer, writing for the majority, uh, found the authority in the Necessary and Proper Clause. The dissent by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Scalia, Uh, found that uh, argument utterly wanting. Walk us through the necessary and proper clause uh, generally and how it applies here. The basic issue here concerns the fact that the Constitution is a constitution of limited powers. There are only 18 powers that Congress has. The last of those is the necessary and proper clause, which Justice Breyer invoked in this case, and that authorizes Congress to pass those laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution its other powers or other powers belonging to the other branches. And so it is parasitic upon those prior powers. It's not an independent power itself. It authorizes simply the means to carry out those other powers. Elena Kagan was Solicitor General arguing this case, and she indicated that the necessary and proper clause in this case provided what, a, what sounded like a freestanding authority. Elena Kagan argued in this case that Congress had the power under the necessary and proper clause to pass those laws which were necessary and proper to carry out its incarceration functions, running very, various federal prisons, for example. But the problem there is that it's a real stretch to say that incarcerating uh, people who are sexually dangerous is necessary to carry out the federal government's prison functions, and that's exactly what Thomas focused upon. But there is a deeper issue here, too, and that is how it is that all of this springs from, as it does, the Commerce Clause, namely the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. The Commerce Clause was enacted to enable Congress to regulate or make regular commerce among the states in light of the tariffs and other measures that states were erecting under the Articles of Confederation that led to the breakdown of the free flow and commerce among the states. And so its function was to ensure a free national market. Once you stop understanding the Commerce Clause in that functional capacity, however, then it becomes pretty much an open sesame. And indeed, the court has, the modern court, has read it as enabling Congress to regulate anything that affects interstate commerce. But that still leaves us with the question about the civil commitment statute. 
The way we can try to get a handle on this issue is as follows. First of all, we need to ask, why were these five petitioners in federal custody to begin with? Well, it turns out three of them pleaded guilty to possession of child pornography. Two of them um, were involved in abuse of minor children. Now, it turns out those latter two committed their uh, crimes on federal property. And that means that the federal government, since it has plenary power on federal property, could have incarcerated these people under the general police power that it has. But there is no general police power that the federal government has in states. That belongs to the states, not to the federal government. And so these other three, which pleaded guilty to possession of child pornography, were the cases that are the most interesting. And there the question again arises, where is the power of the federal government to incarcerate these people in the first place? Well, it turns out that they were incarcerated under a 1977 act, the Protection of Children Against Sexual Exploitation Act. So presumably the argument would run that the Civil Commitment Act was necessary and proper to carry out this earlier Protection of Children Against Sexual Exploitation Act. But there the problem is, why is it that this Protection of Children Against Sexual Exploitation Act was itself necessary and proper for carrying out the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce? Does any justice make a direct appeal to that argument? No, and that's exactly the problem. Neither the majority nor the dissent makes the connection between the 1977 Protection of Children Against Sexual Exploitation Act and the Commerce Clause. So the question arises, how did we get from the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce, which was designed to ensure a free market in goods among the states, to this 1977 Act for the Protection of Children Against Sexual Exploitation? This is not an act that uh, is designed to ensure the free flow of goods and services. It's not necessary and proper for the uh, carrying out of the power to ensure a free national market. And at the end of the day, this is the leap that lies unaddressed in this case. And it's in a perfect example of how the Commerce Clause has been expanded way beyond its original understanding to create, on the one hand, this 1977 Exploitation of Children Act, and then this Civil Commitment Act following that. And so we go from one extension to the other extension, and this is a prime example of how government grows when the language of the Constitution is read so loosely as the court has read it over the years. Now, mind you, the states could do this under their general police power. And so the question at the end of the day is, how is the federal government, without any general police power, able to do all this? It can do it if the acts are committed on federal property, but these three people who were incarcerated for possession of child pornography committed their acts in states. The states could have done this, the federal government cannot do that under a proper reading of the Constitution. 
Roger Pilon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read his take on the Comstock case on our blog, catoatliberty.org.